You're listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. It is the summer of 2018, and we are going through the book of 1 Timothy this summer as a way to encourage maybe pastors, if you're listening, or church planters, or elders, or deacons, or seminary students, those in Christian leadership. The book of 1 Timothy gives us great instructions on how to function as a biblically faithful church. And even again, if you're not a Christian leader, it's also a great book just to understand how you interact with your leaders and how your leaders are supposed to interact with you and just what a healthy biblical gospel-centered church should look like and should function life like under the lordship of Christ. And so we are diving into 1 Timothy chapter 3, which gives us the qualification for elders or for pastors or overseers. And before we actually dive into the text of 1 Timothy, I want us just to remember the context. Uh, Timothy is a young pastor who was appointed by Paul to pastor the church in the city of Ephesus. And you get some insight into the role of elders based upon Paul's farewell sermon to the elders that were already established. When Paul went to Ephesus on his church planning mission, he did appoint elders in the city of Ephesus. And when he leaves to go on to his next ministry station, Paul summons all of the elders to Miletus and he addresses them with a farewell speech, which actually could be considered a sermon. And you get some insight into the wording that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, uses to describe an elder. And so there are three Greek words that I believe are interchangeable that refers to the same person or to the same office as a pastor or an elder or an overseer. Uh, And we'll look at that. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 17... Uh, Luke writes, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, that's Paul, he sent to Ephesus and and called the elders of the church to come to him. Okay, so he called the elders. Presbyteros is the Greek word there. Presbyteros, it it means elder. Now that word comes from two different um, avenues in that ancient world. In the ancient synagogue system, there were older men that were the elders in the synagogue. But also in the Greek city-states, there were also elders that were kind of the leaders of the cities. And so when we think about an elder, it's usually, it doesn't necessarily have to be a person who's older in age, but it's someone who's seasoned, it's someone who's mature, it's, it's someone who um, has that spiritual maturity. So Paul summons the elders, plural, of the church to come to him. And then as you go down to verse 28 in that same chapter in Acts 20, Paul says this to the elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Okay, there's the second word. So elders, presbyteros, Greek word, to the 
overseers, that word is episkopos. Episkopos, overseers. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for or to shepherd, this is a verb, or to pastor the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. There's the, the third word there, poimeno, or poimeno, uh, which is the word shepherd or to care for. And so you get some insight in the interchangeable relationship between these three words, elder, overseer, pastor, the verb form, to pastor, to shepherd, I believe are interchangeable, all speaking about the same person, the same office. Now, as you think about this text in Acts, um, there are three key issues that emerge in how elders are to lead. So before we even get into 1 Timothy and talk about the qualifications for elders, let's just look at the context of, Eph of Ephesus here and of how Paul addresses these elders in Acts chapter 20. First of all, one thing we see here is that the Holy Spirit specifically calls and empowers elders. Notice Paul says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, has appointed you as overseers, which means that the Holy Spirit sovereignly calls and supernaturally assigns elders to their ministry office. And so as a result of this, there is really no such thing as a self-appointed pastor. The Holy Spirit sovereignly and supernaturally calls the elder, the pastor, the overseer to that ministry office. So it's a call of God upon the life of a man. Spurgeon warns young pastors with this very interesting statement in his book, Lectures to My Students. He says, quote, this is Spurgeon, quote, it is a fearful calamity to a man to miss his calling and to the church upon whom he imposes himself. His mistake involves an affliction of the most grievous kind. That's an interesting statement from Spurgeon. Basically, what he's saying is, if you're specifically called to the ministry by the Holy Spirit of God, you can't run from that. You can't shake that call. You need to submit, surrender to the call because it's the Holy Spirit who's calling you. But if you're not called by the Holy Spirit, if you just impose yourself upon a church as a self-appointed pastor without the Holy Spirit's call upon your life, Spurgeon says it's a mistake of the most grievous kind. It's going to cause problems. Okay, so the Holy Spirit sovereignly appoints or calls elders. But the second thing we see is that Paul charges them to keep watch over the flock through a shepherding ministry to keep watch. Keeping watch is one of the most important things an elder can do. It means that elders and pastors show great concern and care over the spiritual well-being of the congregation. They guard the sheep in the congregation from wolves that would come in and destroy them with false teaching with poisonous seeds of disunity. John MacArthur has said this in his book, Pastoral Ministry, How to Shepherd Biblically. John MacArthur states, A shepherd who fails to feed his flock 
will not have a flock for long. His sheep will wander off to other fields or die of starvation. Above all, God requires of his spiritual shepherds that they feed their flocks. Care for the flock, feed the flock, protect the flock as appointed by the Holy Spirit. One thing we also see, the third thing, and this is as we read further down, and I will read that passage, is that Paul, when he's addressing the elders at at Ephesus, he emphasized how the systematic preaching and teaching of the Word of God over his own three-year ministry in Ephesus built up the church in grace, and he commends or encourages the elders to continue upon that foundation to systematically preach and teach God's Word to build the church up in God's grace. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul shared with them the whole counsel of God. He didn't shrink back from that. And so he's commending to the elders, you need to carry on this pattern. You need to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word. Don't shrink back from the hard passages of Scripture, those parts of the Bible that you may not want to address because they're not um, basically popular or they're not going to be received well. You have no choice as a pastor. You have to preach the whole counsel of God's word. And that's why uh, one of the practices that I have adopted over the 13 years of being the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church is what I call systematic expository preaching through books of the Bible, usually alternating between Old and New Testament. So right now, we are in the book of Galatians. We're going expositionally through the book of Galatians. We just finished up the book of John. So we've been in the New Testament for about two and a half years now. And so the next sermon series that I'm going to do in the fall is probably going to be an Old Testament book because I believe that we need to expose people, our congregation, to the whole counsel of God's Word. And sometimes pastors hang out in the books of the Bible that they particularly like. Or topics that are what would be their hobby horse or their wheelhouse. And so we need to expose people to the whole counsel of God's word. And listen to what Paul says there in verse 31 and 32. He says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not see Snyder Day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, what Paul's saying is, listen, when you do expositional preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God's word, and he did that for three years there, admonishing, teaching with heartfelt tears, he says this word of grace, the word of grace, the gospel, the scriptures build up the congregation, and they are the ultimate means of sanctifying the congregation. Let me just give a word of encouragement to pastors that are listening to this. If you want your church to experience spiritual growth, maturity, the primary way you accomplish that, now the Holy Spirit obviously has to do that, is through systematic, expositional preaching and teaching of the whole counsel of God's word. And this is difficult at times because there's so many different things pulling against that based upon our culture. 
You look at televangelists, you look at the internet, you look at Facebook, you look at blogs, you look at podcasts, you look at all the different topics that pastors or churches are tempted to address, and they go off on all these tangents, and they get into psychotherapy, and they get into politics, and they get into uh, maybe how to improve your life, and all these different things, except for the meat of the scriptures, the whole counsel of God's word. So, Paul calls the Ephesian elders. This is before Timothy gets there. This is when Paul had just been there for three years. He's getting ready to leave. He calls the elders, the presbyteros. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos. So you've been appointed by the Holy Spirit himself. And you are to care for, to shepherd, to guard, to teach, to preach, to nourish the flock of God. And you do this primarily through preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God's word, which can build up the church as the primary means of sanctification of the saints. So that is the background to Paul's message to the Ephesian elders. Now let's go to 1 Timothy where Timothy's the pastor of that same church in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is going to give the qualifications. So in Acts, you get more of the role, responsibilities, more of a specific address to those elders. Here, Paul lists the general qualifications of an elder slash pastor. So let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil." Paul says if anyone aspires or desires this task, this office of, a no, of an overseer, um, some translation says sets his heart upon eldership. Uh, the Greek word here carries the idea that it's a passion. It's something that burns within your soul. God has called you to this, and you cannot say no because it is your heartfelt desire that God has put there. Remember, the Holy Spirit calls a man. Now, the church affirms that call. There is the internal call of the Holy Spirit on the man of God where the Holy Spirit calls and stirs up that passion. And almost like the holy hound of heaven hounds the man until he finally submits and says, yes, I'm going to surrender to the ministry. That's the internal calling of the Holy Spirit. But there's also the external call where the congregation surrounds the man and says, yes, we as a congregation see evidences of God's grace. We see these character traits. We see 
see these abilities. We see this in the man. And so we're affirming that internal call. So you got to have both of those, I think. When a man's called to ministry, when a man's called to eldership, there's got to be that internal passion that comes from the Holy Spirit, and there's got to be that external affirmation where the congregation sees that and affirms that call. You know, Peter addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, not under compulsion. You don't become an elder because it's a slot to fill, or you do it out of guilt because nobody's stepping up to the plate, or you're doing it begrudgingly because you just feel like you have to, or somebody's making you. Or, you know, that's not the way any elder should approach this high and holy calling. It's an aspiration, it's a passion, it's a desire put in your heart by the Holy Spirit. I can't quite describe this subjective call because it's hard to describe. I just know what it's like in my life. When I was about 16 years old, we went on a mission trip to the western slope of Colorado to a mountain town called Telluride, Colorado. And we did vacation Bible school, and we helped a young church planter there uh, to, to do a lot of things to reach out to the community. And through that experience of doing ministry, and through that experience of being with my youth group, uh, that last night when we were gathered together in the sanctuary to pray and to debrief, I felt an overwhelming, strong sense of God's call on my heart to the ministry. And I shared it with my parents, and I shared it with my youth pastor, and I shared it with my church family. And, and my youth pastor, thankfully, gave me opportunities to help kind of clarify that call. And then fast forward to my sophomore year in college. We went to Glorieta, New Mexico, where there's a big camp there called uh, Glorieta. And it was student week. It's where all students from all over uh, the country come together for a big week of, of, of hearing speakers. And um, it was, I think, one of the nights there that, again, I felt that pounding in my chest that God had called me to ministry, and you just can't shake it. Well, later on in life, I kind of tried to run from that call. Um, I tried to pursue some other things, some other avenues, uh, go, I, actually, I got a degree in filmmaking, and I thought I was going to move my family to Hollywood and become a screenwriter, and obviously God put that to a screeching halt, and um, I was called as a part-time youth director um, at a church in Colorado Springs, First Baptist Church of Black Forest, and that summer, it was the summer of 1998, it was basically going to be a trial uh, period to see um, if this is what God was calling me to, and it was a trial period to see if this is what the church wanted, which I think was very healthy. So it was a three-month period. Three -month period um, I don't want to call it probation, but you know, coming with the idea that I wasn't quite sure about my calling and the church wanted to make sure that this was um, legitimate before they moved forward. And, and obviously, when I got into that ministry, after about three months, obviously I knew that God had called me. And it was a, a bivocational job. I, I had my own job. I was working um, as a marketing um, executive, not executive, a marketing rep, rep for, a, for, a for a company that did scanner research for a major grocery store chain. And so that next year, we took the youth to um, camp 
on a mission trip, and that was, again, where I strongly sensed, like, this was it. Like, God said, okay, I've taken you through these, these steps all the way back at age 16, all the way back when you were a sophomore in college, you know, all, all of these moments, and here's the culmination. Are you going to fully surrender your life to ministry? And so that's the moment where... Um, you know, I, I surrendered totally, our family. Um, I quit that job. The church brought me on full-time, and I started seminary. Um, and that was the, the God's call on my life, subjectively, internally, through many different experiences. But every single time, it was affirmed by the church family. It was affirmed by Christian leaders that saw that in my life, youth pastors, parents, mature people in the church, other pastors that saw that internal call being manifested through my life. And so you, you, you've got the aspiration to be an elder or a pastor. It's got to be that internal motivation, passion that comes from the Holy Spirit, also confirmed by the external affirmation of the congregation. We also have to remember here that it is a noble task. It's a noble task task. It's something that's a high and holy calling upon a man's life. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but there are 15 characteristics. And Paul lists these, so let's just go through this list of, of character qualifications of a pastor slash elder slash overseer. Okay, so the first one is above reproach. He must be above reproach. Now, this means he has a good reputation with moral character. Uh, the Greek word there can actually mean not to be taken hold of, which describes a man of such character that no one can properly bring any accusation or charge against him that will hold. You see, you see the, the, kind of the, the etymology, the meaning of that word? If they bring an accusation, it's not going to stick. It's not going to hold because he's such a man of great character that, that there's, no, there, there's no possible way that anybody's going to bring any type of accusation against him. He's above reproach. Okay, number two, the husband of one wife. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this means, and, and I don't want to get into that on this podcast. Let's just say, for the sake of of what this means on its basic level is that there's a healthy marriage of moral purity. The man is faithful to his wife. He keeps the marriage bed pure. He is sexually faithful. He's, there's marital fidelity. He has a healthy, strong marriage where he's faithful to his wife. He's a model of a godly husband. All right, number three, he is sober minded. This means he has a clear focus. He has stability in life. His life is not chaotic. He's not given to rashness or unwise decisions. You know, some people, their lives are just chaotic. And a lot of times by design, they make rash choices. They make unwise decisions. They're always going off in all these different directions. There's never really any stability in the family or in the life. An elder must be sober-minded. Number four, very closely related, is self-controlled. Literally, having a sound mind. He's sensible. He's under control. He uses good judgment. He's sober-minded. Number five, respectable. 
literally a life that adorns. Little Greek, literally the Greek word there, adorns the gospel. Here's really what that word means. It means that your inward spiritual life is reflected in an outward life that is orderly and godly. In other words, your life brings glory to the gospel. Number six, hospitable. Being willing to use your resources in your home to minister to others. I think elders need to open up their homes. Um, just last night, we opened up our home to a young family that's um, struggling with some, some issues. And so we had them and their kids over. And our, our kids are, are grown. And we have a special needs child who's 18. But obviously, he still plays with toys. And so, you know, the kids were running around and watching TV. And we were having dinner. And, and that's just part of life as an elder, being willing to open your home as a safe place where people can come and talk and pray and be encouraged. Um, are you opening your home and using your resources to be hospitable? Now, number seven is not necessarily a character quality, but it's the only thing on the list that is given as a, um, actually a, a duty or an um, ability. And that is the ability to teach. The rest are all character issues, but an elder's got to be able to teach. He's got to have that ability. He's got to have sound doctrine. He's got to be able to, to teach and preach. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 22-25, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. He must be able to teach. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's a, there's a twofold ability or responsibility of an elder. He has to be able to give sound doctrine. He has to be able to teach. He has to be able to preach, but he also has to be able to rebuke or address or confront those who contradict sound teaching. So there's, there's the positive giving instruction, there's the negative. Sometimes you have to rebuke, you have to confront. Okay, number eight, not given to drunkenness. Not being addicted to alcohol. Being an example to others. Now, here's a, this is a kind of a controversial one because there's a debate out there. Should pastors drink alcohol or is it okay for a pastor to drink alcohol? Uh, let me give you my personal opinion, my personal um, practice. Um, I personally and my wife, we're teetotalers. We do not drink alcohol. We've never had alcohol in the house in my pastoral ministry. We just don't drink alcohol. The reason we don't is because we want to be an example to the flock. We don't want to be a stumbling block. We've seen it abused in our own family, and so we've just made the personal choice out of prudence to not drink alcohol. Now, with that being said, I do not think you can make a biblical case that drinking is sinful because Jesus drank at the wedding of Cana. Um, the Bible gives permission to drink. The only prohibition is from getting drunk. And so can an elder, can a pastor drink alcohol? I think this is an issue of judgment. I think this is an issue of personal Christian liberty. I don't think you need to be legalistic, but I think each church 
needs to probably figure out what their stance is going to be on this for their leaders. Um, I think pastors, it's always better to err on the side of prudence and not being a stumbling block. I won't be legalistic and say pastors should never drink, but the prohibition here is not given to drunkenness, um, not being an alcoholic, not giving to excess. And so, you know, you, you know how much alcohol you can handle and, and all those different situations. And so I think you need to err on the side of prudence. Again, I don't want to be legalistic about this. Number nine, not violent. The word literally means a bruiser. Um, he's ready to give a blow. Uh, an elder's not aggressive. He's not quarrelsome. He doesn't, not only does he not fight physically, but verbally. He doesn't browbeat others or shame them. He's not a bully. Um, interestingly, um, I'm just going to drop a name here because it's very, you know, it happened a few years ago. Uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll out of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Um, probably one of the fastest growing churches, one of the most dynamic leaders, the whole resurgence ministry, um, you know, Young, Restless, and Reformed. He was the poster child for the Young, Restless, Reformed movement um, in a city that's very ungodly and, and progressive like Seattle. And, um, but then his elders and his church had to ask him to leave. Basically, he had to, to resign because of tactics that were considered to be a bully that he was verbally abusive, that he was overly aggressive, um, that he was um, not gentle, which is number 10, gentle. Uh, this word really means to be fair-minded, to be reasonable. You know, there are times when we as elders have had to um, bring people in and listen to both sides of an issue. Uh, we've had to be mediators between families, or we've had to, to listen to grievances of one person to another, or even against ourselves, or, or, or different things like that. And, and, and elders need to be able to be fair-minded. They need to be able to be reasonable, gentle. When, when there's confrontation, when there's conflict in the church, uh, they can't be given to want to immediately fight or be, to be abusive. They've got to be fair-minded. And that's, a lot of these are, are related. Number 11 is not quarrelsome. He's peaceable. One who avoids needless debates or arguments. Number 12, not a lover of money. So elders model, model generosity. They model financial stewardship. They're not consumed with materialism. First uh, Timothy 6, 9-10, through 10, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through the cravings that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's talk about money here for a moment because um, there are two major temptations that a pastor and elder is always going to be faced with. Uh, sex and money. Uh, the devil's going to tempt elders, pastors with those two issues. And I think that money is one of those things that, you know, it's very personal. We as a family tithe our income and even above that to the church on a regular basis. We have pledged to our building fund 
So we give above and beyond our tithe to the building fund, and, and we've been in a building fund since 2000. So for 18 years, our family has been giving above and beyond our tithe to a building program. Because when I was in Colorado Springs, we were in two building programs, and here we've been in four. So every church I've been to, we've built a building, and we've had to, to pay for the, the indebtedness. And we also give above and beyond that to missions and to other uh, types of things. And so elders should obviously be the leaders in the church as far as financial stewardship. They need to be generous with the resources. Um, you look at these televangelists on TV that are, you know, billionaires that are wanting their third jet and they don't want to ride in, in coach on a, on a regular airline because they don't want to be stuck in that tube with all of those infidels and all those evil people. So they've got to have their private jets. I think to me that's, that's very ungodly, not a lover of money. 13 is a good one. Manages his own household well to show that he can care for the household of God, the church. Um, Paul uses two Greek words here in this passage to describe leadership. He says managing, he needs to manage. That means to stand before the people and lead. Um, it's that word prohistemi. Um, 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who lead well, prohistemi, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's one of Paul's favorite words for leadership, prohistemi, literally to stand before the people, to lead, to preside, to care. He needs to lead his family. But then Paul says if he can't lead his family, how can he care for the church? That's a different Greek word, care. That, that denotes more of careful attention. Genuine concern. That Greek word is very interesting, care. The only other time this rare Greek New Testament word shows up is in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. When, he, when, when the Good Samaritan brought the beaten man into the inn to quote-unquote take care of him. A significant parallel shows how pastors care, compassionate. So the pastor needs to lead and care for his family so that he can lead and care for the church. Now, I'm not saying that you have to have a perfect family. I'm not saying that your kids could never fall into sin. But if your life is chaotic and you have unruly children and you have a house that's in disarray and your children are not submissive and there's just rebellion and chaos in your family then why in the world do you think that you can export that and not have it affect the entire church family? In other words, as the shepherd, pastor, elder of your physical family, if you can't pastor, lead, well, care for, manage your physical family, however big that is, how in the world are you going to be able to manage the large family of God's people, the church? And people are watching that. Your church watches how you parent, how you relate. They watch your kids. And there's always that stigma of having, you know, the pastor's kids. By the grace of God, I am thankful that my children, now one is a special needs child, and so God has graced us with, he, he doesn't disbehave or, or, you know, get rebellion, and, and, and we're so thankful for that. He has his own challenges, but we're thankful for that. But my oldest son, who will be turning 21 this fall, 
um, is following God in ministry. Um, he is a student out at California Baptist University, and he is sensing God's call upon his life, and he is walking with the Lord, and we are thankful by the grace of God. Um, God has been gracious to our family. I attribute that all to God. Okay, number 14, not a recent convert. Okay, You need to be very careful that you don't rush to put people in positions of leadership unless they've got a proven track record of faithfulness where you can observe their character, their family life, their doctrine. Here's the rule that we have at Emmanuel. Nobody can become or even be nominated or be considered as an elder or a deacon at Emmanuel unless they've been a covenant member for at least a year. We want to, first of all, make sure they're a member, that they've, they've bought into being a covenant member of Emmanuel. They've committed their life here. And then we want to be able to observe them for a period of a year. We want to see their theology. We want to see their um, participation in the life of the church. We want to see their family. We want to see how they interact. Uh, we want to see that proven track record uh, before we put them into positions of leadership. Um, very interesting, at my former church, we had that same rule. They, had, they, were, they were more of a traditional Southern Baptist church with deacons, um, whereas we have elders, a plurality of elders, and we have deacons. But the rule at my former church was you had to be a member for a year in order to be a deacon. Well, there was this guy that moved into town, and he um, began coming to the church, and they joined, and his kids were in my youth group. I was a youth pastor at the time, and, um, and he you know, was involved in Sunday school and was very involved, and um, him and his wife you know, just jumped right in, and um, people were like, man, he would be a great a great deacon candidate. And so it came time for them to nominate deacons and to put deacons into place and the church to vote. And um, I remember being in a church council meeting, or maybe it was a deacons meeting. I can't remember what it was. I, that was back when there was a lot of meetings I went to as a youth pastor. Um, but he had not been a member for a year. It had been something like maybe six months. And, and some of the deacons were like, you know, we, we need to really stick with this rule because we have this rule for a purpose so we can observe. Others were like, you know, he's, he's been a good you know, we, we know him enough. He's been here long enough. He's proved himself. And so they broke the rule and went ahead and installed him as a deacon. Well, about three months later, I get a call from my senior pastor. Okay, we lived, we both lived in parsonages um, outside, you know, right next to the church. He lived in the bigger parsonage. I lived in the smaller parsonage. And so, you know, we could see each other's houses and the church was in between. He, my senior pastor called me weeping which shocked me because I never really... It's saying that this man has basically moved behind the scenes to try to fire the senior pastor and to try to get the other deacons on board. And obviously, that didn't work. He was asked to step down, and they ended up leaving the church. But because we, quote-unquote, broke the rule and made an exception for that one person, it caused major problems. Now, that's an extreme situation. But Paul's point here is that if you don't have um, a system in place to observe, to um, make sure that the person has have a proven track record, you should put, not put a recent convert or even a person you don't know in a position of leadership. And then number 15, he has to have a good reputation with those outside the church. Um, how's the elder perceived in the community? Um, if he is a lay elder, uh, how are his business dealings? How is his testimony? What would people outside the church say? You know, when we have 
elders and deacons. We just um, brought four new deacons on in the life of our church. And, and it's the same process for elders and deacons. It's a little bit more extensive for elders, obviously. But there's one thing that's constant between the two is that once they're announced to the church... And once they've gone through the process of theology and we've interviewed them and we present them to the church and they've given their testimony, we announce to the church, okay, because this is what our constitution and bylaws calls for. There is a two-week period of testing. And then during that two-week period, what we tell the congregation is, we've announced to you these men. We've vetted these men. But there may be something you don't know or we don't know uh, that you know in your dealings with them in the community and outside the church. So we've given you a two-week period to come to us as elders with any concerns you may have. And so we give people a period of two, work, two weeks for us, them to come to us. And it's never really happened before, but maybe somebody could come and say, you know what, um, there's something about this guy that maybe you don't know, and this is what happened out in the community, or this is what happened with his business, and, and I have some red flags. And they have every right in those two-week period to come to us um, because we want to prove, uh, have a proven track record. We want to have a period of testing. We want to make sure they have a, a good reputation with those outside the church. We just want to be faithful to these qualifications. And so some churches put anybody and everybody in positions of leadership without any type of qualifications whatsoever. We as a manual go very slow. We take this very seriously. We have an elder charter and we have a constitution and bylaws that speak about how we go about choosing elders. Elders, at this point, because we have a plurality of elders, we as elders are usually on the lookout to identify men in our church that we perceive fit the qualifications, are able to teach. And so at this time, there is one man that's going through the process. And so there's this long, lengthy elder candidate questionnaire that asks about theology, asks about character. He goes through that. He takes the time to fill that out, sends it back to us as elders. We as elders go through that. We look at it. We, we see if there's any things that would be red flags, any things we want, anything that we think we need to follow up on. Then we have a follow-up um, interview with him and his wife where we sit down and we ask him even more questions. And then... Once they've gone through the theology grid, once they've gone through the character grid, once they've gone through the interview with the wife, then we say, okay, are you ready to be presented before the congregation and go through the process of examination? And so at that point, we bring the person and say, this person is a candidate for eldership. And then that person, and we say, you know, they've gone through this whole process behind the scenes. We're presenting them to you as a congregation. That person gives their testimony. There's opportunities for people to come to us if they have any red flags, and then there's that two-week period, and if, if, if everything goes well, you know, best-case scenario, um, that elder is ordained in the life of the church and affirmed by the congregation. And so we, I've just seen too many churches have poor leadership, lack of leadership, ungodly leadership where people are either doing it because it's a power play, they're doing it because nobody else can do it, they're doing it because they have agendas. And the last thing you, you, you ask these churches is, well, what, do, the, do the leaders fulfill the biblical qualifications of an elder to be leading? And so the reason I think Paul puts these in here is so that churches have something very specific in how to select the elders, the leaders for their church. Now, Paul goes on to address deacons, and I'm not going to necessarily do a podcast on deacons because a lot of the qualifications are similar. 
between elders and deacons. Let me just make a two, couple of comments. Uh, number one, uh, we strongly believe that elders are male and only male. Um, only men can be elders. We talked about that last time when we talked about how a woman should not um, have authority over a man or teach men. We believe that the plurality of elders in the life of the church should be only males, and they are the spiritual leaders. Now, we also believe that there are deacons in the church. Deacons are not elders. Deacons are ministers of mercy. They're servants. They take care of more of the physical needs of the church to allow the elders to take care of more of the overall spiritual direction of the church. And so the deacons serve under the elders. So we have elders and deacons in the life of Emmanuel. As a matter of fact, if you go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, uh, you see Paul addressing... Um, Basically, the three basic groups in the life of a church. Philippians 1, 1, 1, Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Three groups. The saints, that's the congregation, and the overseers slash elders and the deacons. So deacons are not elders. Elders are not deacons. Elders are the male spiritual leaders of the church that fit this qualification that have been called out by the Holy Spirit to shepherd the flock, to lead the flock, to manage the flock, to provide spiritual oversight to the flock. Deacons serve under the authority of the elders as an extension of the elders, and they still have qualifications. So Paul lists the qualifications of deacons. Very, very similar, but the one difference between the two is deacons does not have to be able to teach. A deacon, does, a deacon needs to have good theology, but a deacon does not have to teach. A deacon will not be called upon to refute false doctrine you know, at a formal setting in the church. Um, a deacon's not going to preach. A deacon's not, it doesn't mean a deacon won't ever preach or teach. It just means he doesn't have to have that ability to do so. More of a behind-the-scenes minister of mercy, serving the benevolence needs of the church, widows, orphans, the physical needs to really help the elders focus on uh, the big-picture items. And oftentimes, elders and deacons work together, uh, especially to minister hand-in-hand to the church. But there's still qualifications for deacons. And so um, the other day, not the other day, it was probably a couple months ago, I was talking to another pastor who has a totally different denomination, totally different structure. Uh, They have what's called a board, a church board um, that people get voted on and they rotate on and off. And um, I said, well, what are the spiritual qualifications for those on the board? And he sheepishly looked at me and says, I don't really know if we have any. It's just kind of how the congregation votes. And I said, well, what if you end up with a bunch of ungodly, unqualified people on there? They're going to make life difficult for you. And he says, yeah, and he goes, every church I've been in, that's the problem I've had to deal with is that we've had people not qualified on this board. And so it's very important how a church does its polity. Now, I'm not going to be legalistic and say that every church has to have a plurality of elders. That's just what we believe as a manual. We, we believe that a plurality of male elders leading the church spiritually along with qualified deacons is what the Bible calls for as far as the best polity or way that God has chosen to set up the local church. And so as you've listened to this, uh, two things. Number one, if you are a pastor or a church planter or a seminary student or an elder, this would be a friendly reminder of the qualifications and the calling that God has upon your life. If you are a lay person listening to this as just a church member, this should help you understand the qualifications that your pastors and elders should have and how they should relate to you. And so even though these qualifications aren't for you specifically, 
They do help you understand that the healthy church needs to have healthy, godly leaders, and everybody needs to be on the same page biblically as to what this is according to the scriptures. And so that gives us the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope you're having a great summer. It's hot here in northeast Colorado, but we are thankful for the times that it does rain. Um, if you have any questions or comments that you'd like to contact us, um, you can go to seancole.net. You can find all of my contact information there. You can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. You can email me. I appreciate all the interactions we have. You can go on iTunes and give us a positive review and rating. That would really help us. You can get this podcast out to um, others that you think would benefit by it through all your different social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, We'd love for you to share understanding Christianity with others. So may God bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. And until next time, would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus?